All right, welcome. We are in uh, 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 12. I entitled tonight, Questions. What we're going to do tonight is almost like a review night. Uh, the, 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 the passage, you know, John is very clear. He, he always likes to, he sounds the same note almost all the time. And so we're going to get more of that tonight. So we're going we're gonna to have, uh, don't you remember those, um, those tests when you were in grade school where they'd read you a story and then you had these uh, comprehension questions? How well did you listen to the story? And do you remember what this one said to that one and what the major plot points? It's a kind of, you know, comprehension. How much did you comprehend? Tonight's going to be like that. So what we're going to do is we're going to have discussions at tables. We have nine questions we're going to go through. Twelve verses tonight, but we're going to look at nine questions. These nine questions... A lot of them are going to be like theology 101 kind of stuff. But it's information that you don't want to leave 1 John without knowing. Okay? So we begin with a word of prayer, then we'll get started. God, thank you for tonight, for these men and women who are journeying so faithfully through the book of 1 John. We pray we are challenged and encouraged tonight, all for your glory, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we have four sections tonight, four basic concepts. The first one is born of God. The second one is victory. The third one is testimony. And the fourth one is eternal life. So the first one, born of God. So this idea of from uh, verses 1 to the first part of 4. Here we go from 1 John chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Okay. So, we have our first question is, what does Jesus is the Christ? That comes from verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So in your groups... What does Jesus is the Christ mean? What does that Christ word mean? This is something that you should know as a Christian, or you, should, you need to know this as a Christian. So a supplemental verse here from John 1, 17 to 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So... Our first question, and I'll play some music here. Our first question, use the, use the helpful verse that I gave you there. What does Jesus is the Christ? What does that mean?
minutes. Two minutes. Two minutes. Table number one up here. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Do we have a spokesperson? Randy, what you got? By the way, table two, pick a spokesperson. So the anointed, he, there's a designation that all right, he is God's chosen person. So Jesus is a person. He was and is a human. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, table two, what does Jesus is the Christ mean? We got similarly, he's the Messiah, but he's also one and the same with God, and that that's your way to salvation. Totally. Yeah, I, lo I love that verse from John 1. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God. And this is the one verse after the Christ. So describing the same person, he's the Christ, and he represents God. No one's seen God but the one who is also God. You're seeing God. And he has a closer, the closest relationship with the Father who has made him known. So, yeah, the word Christ is Christos in Greek. It's a form of Mashiach, which is Hebrew. And it means anointed one. So yeah, chosen. God's chosen mean of salvation. God in the flesh. Death. The death of Jesus was real. And it was necessary. The Messiah had to die. He had to be the, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. So you've got to understand, we discussed this last week. In John's church, his enemies that were bringing people away, they hated the flesh. They hated the fact that Jesus had to be the Messiah because the Messiah meant that he was a man, but also God. Like God becoming man to save everybody. That was the Jewish concept of the Messiah. Or God's special representative, but in Daniel chapter 7, the one who is son of man coming on the clouds is not God, so to speak, but receives worship like God does. And no one says anything about it. So essentially, he is God. And that's Jesus, God's chosen representative. His chosen means of salvation. Who had to die. Physical, fleshly death. It was necessary. 
Number two question, what does it mean to be born of God? So remember our passage here in 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father, okay, so born of God. What does it mean to be born of God? The helpful verse here from John 3, not John 3.16, John 3.6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Let's take a couple minutes here. What does it mean to be born of God? Alright, what do we think? What does it mean to be born of God? We'll start at table two here. No one born of God practices 
senses sit. So we almost equated that with a new birth. A new birth. Interesting. All right. Good job. Let's see. Remember, John, as was rightly pointed out, John is loves to sound the same note over and over again, and he likes using the same terminology over and over again. All throughout First John, we've heard all about loving fellow Christians. We've also heard about being born of God. What do we say here, Table One? What does it mean to be born of God? Well, most simply, it just means to be God's child, and we do that by and I reference the first part of the first verse. Jesus to be the Christ. Mm. Also, if we reference further on down, that the proof of our being God's child is that we love other other children of God, our fellow brothers we and try. sisters. If you say. Well, yes, we are still imperfect. Good job. So you guys, you guys did a good job there of applying it. <laughs> but I guess my question could have been a little bit more philosophical. What? Think about it real quick, because the, the verse I referenced in John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus, Jesus talks about, you must be born again. And Nicodemus takes it in the world of the flesh, and it's kind of gross. We don't want to think of our mother that way. That's okay, fine. And, and that's kind of weird how he brings that up, and, and Jesus is like, you've got to be kidding me. You're one of Israel's teachers, and you don't understand this concept. Jesus takes this idea of being born again and he does not accept Nicodemus saying in the world of the flesh, he instead applies it to the world of the spirit. Because he says here, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. So there's something about the spiritual that's going on here with God. Which is not just some kind of hippie little concept. The spiritual, God, God is not spiritual, God is the Holy Spirit. So, I like to think of the Trinity, the reason why you are born of God is because Father, Son, Holy Spirit got a hold of you. Here's what happened. Jesus talks about, you know, all the ones that my Father is uh, drawing to me. The Father takes initiative. God the Father takes initiative. We see this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your sins. So you're not in the ICU wing of the hospital, you're in the morgue. Your sins, you are dead. But God, God goes to your lifeless corpse spiritually of no faith possible, and God breathes life. God breathes faith into you. So the initiative of the Father, how are you ever born of God? The initiative of the Father, the second of all, He does it through the work of the Holy Spirit. We call this the process of sanctification. The rest of your life, Christian, the Holy Spirit works in and through you and on you to make you a little bit less like your sinful self and a little bit more like Jesus. Sanctification, being made more holy. And that's the Spirit's role. And, the, and Jesus is the object of our faith. His sacrifice paid it all for us. Our faith is in Him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You are born of God because God regenerated you. God made it possible. We're told we love in 1 John. Why? Because he first loved us. That's why in the book of John it talks about children being born not from a, a, a father's choice or the love of the parents. No. Being born of the will of God. God chose to give you his love. What does it mean to be born of God? 
It means that God's got a hold of you, and God's not letting you go. And God is regenerating you, causing you to be born again. And it is all his work. We can't possibly add it to anything that God is doing. All that we bring is the sin that needs to be paid for. Yes, ma'am. Of, of what? I'm sorry. It says not in flesh, but in spirit. Born, to be born again. Is yeah. Portion meaning? It's a great question. What, what, what does, with Nicodemus, he, he, he struggled with that. Because Jesus said born again, and he immediately thought of um, a birthing room. He immediately thought of um, his mother giving birth to him. Does she have to give birth to me again? No. Jesus is not talking about that realm. He's talking about what the Holy Spirit does as he re regenerates the Christian. And see, that's something that is, is hard to understand. But we say we're born again as Christians. We're not talking about an, you know, an obstetrician or a gynecologist. We're not talking about the neonatal unit at a hospital. We're not talking about a birthing room. We're talking about God's work within us. That God is changing us. <coughs> we see this all throughout scripture when it tells us to take off the old self and put on the new self that old self wants to keep coming back that old self invades your marriages that old self invades your relationships that old self needs to be denied that's how we follow Jesus so yeah born again being born of God remember God is spirit so God can't birth anybody, so to speak. So it has to be, the world of the flesh can't possibly describe what John is describing here. It's a spiritual rebirth. The next question here, just shouted out, is right from your text. How does God define love? Love means keeping your commands. What's another way to put that? Obey. Obey, yeah. So remember earlier on we talked about love and we said, you know, God God doesn't love and hate the same way you would love and hate because we love and hate emotionally and our emotions are driven by our passions and our passions are driven by our sin. So when you love somebody, it, the, the temptation is to allow your prideful selfishness to invade that love so that love may turn into some kind of manipulation. That love may turn into some kind of a prideful expression. And sin does not enter into God's economy. So God is able to love and hate selflessly, without sin. So this makes a lot of sense when God defines love as obedience. To put it in the terms of an Old Testament scholar, covenant faithfulness. If you keep the terms of your covenant, you're showing covenant love. That's how I, that's how I define Jacob, have I loved? And Esau, have I hated? God chose to make a covenant with Jacob, he chose to not make a covenant with Esau. It wasn't like God was on a power trip and he said, oh, I hate them and I love this one. Boy, look at that. God doesn't love and hate the same way we love and hate because we love and hate with our sinful emotions. We follow our hearts. We do all those things we know we shouldn't do. God does not. So God's love and hatred are perfect. They're not sinful, so they are tied to the covenant. We show that kind of love to God by showing covenant faithfulness to God. We show covenant faithfulness to God through obedience. So when you say, when Scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
You're not too far off when you say, yeah, that means I need to obey the Lord my God with all my heart. Now, it breaks down when you say, love your neighbor as yourself. That's an expression of the covenant. That itself is not the covenant. But you still seek what's best for the other partner, the other person. It's still selfless. It's still a selfless choice. You never love someone to get anything in return. That is not love. That is more akin to lust, not love. Lust uses, love serves. That's born of God. You are a Christian because God has given you new life. It's all throughout Scripture. All those who belong to Christ are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 All throughout the Bible, in the New Testament specifically, we have this old and new, old and new, old and new. What does it mean to be new? I'm still the same me. I still have the same DNA. I still have all the same physical characteristics. I don't come to Christ and all of a sudden I'm now physically different. No. It's not in the realm of physical. It's in the realm of spiritual. So yeah. All right, victory. Verses 4b and 5. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What's that old hymn? That old hymn is perfect. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. It's perfect. It literally fits this verse. Faith is the victory. It is the victory that has overcome the world. That is our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So our question is, how does a believer see the kind of victory that John here describes? How do we see this victory? All right, this is a quick one. Our verse was from John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's Jesus speaking. So how does a believer see the kind of victory that John here describes, the kind of victory that overcomes the world? What is the only way possible for a believer like you and me to ever see that kind of victory over this sinful, selfish world? Real quick. Okay, and what, what is the number one way we can avoid worldly things? What is our choice rather than the world? Jesus, yes. Jesus overcomes. 
All right, what do we have here? How does a believer experience that victory that John describes? Yeah, so we're told in John's later work in Revelation chapter 12, they overcame the evil one by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So God allows us to have a testimony. That testimony is impacted and furthered by Jesus who is driving the truck, as it were. But he does all the heavy lifting. We discussed that. The blood of the lamb. That causes our overcome, the victory. So we're going, to see, we're going to see this victory unfold in the next question. The next question is, John describes this victory as both a past completed action and a present ongoing action. This comes right from the Greek grammar of the second half of verse 4 and verse 5. This victory is both a past completed action and a present ongoing action. How does this describe the Christian experience? Describe this victory, but in two ways. One, a past completed action, and also, number two, a present ongoing action. Take a minute and let it settle in. You probably never saw it coming. Something's gotta give, so I give up you. victory that occurred in the past as a completed action accomplished on the cross that's right Jesus was the sacrifice paid once for all a past completed action different hymn oh victory in Jesus my savior so it's been accomplished in Jesus in his first advent here he sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. That's it. He accomplished that victory over sin on the cross. And by his resurrection, he conquered death as well. What is table two? We conquered the, the we, we took care of the past completed victory. Jesus says it is finished on the cross. That word also means it is completed. It's perfected. It's done. 
That's been done. We, we, if you celebrate a Christian Passover today, and I have many times, you do not eat lamb. The lamb has already been eaten, as it were. The lamb has already been sacrificed. You do not need to, to sacrifice the lamb anymore. The Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. What's the present ongoing nature of our victory? And I'll give you a hint. It involves the Holy Spirit and His work right now. What is He doing? Yeah! He's working in us and, and, and through us and in terms of our prayer life also alongside us. And yes, He's transforming us. We read in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Who's the one doing the transforming? It is a passive. You are being transformed. You're not transforming. You are being transformed. The Holy Spirit. We're told in Ephesians to walk in the Spirit. We're told to, to bear spiritual fruit. The fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. That's a popular YouTube video right now. With my kids always want to hear it. Play the fruit of the Spirit song, Dad. It's some little rock song. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it's some little rock music and the puppets. And the kids love it. They know their fruit of the Spirit because I'm stinking YouTube video. Yeah. You'd only bear that fruit if the Holy Spirit's working through you and in you and on you. So yeah, that's the present. Think of salvation like this. Salvation has a past, a present, and a future. If you just take the word of God at face value. The past is obvious. The cross. By grace you've been saved. Christ, you have been saved because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross for you. Salvation has a present. I love how 1 Peter says that you've been, you've been achieving the salvation of your souls. This idea that the Spirit is still working on us. No, we're not being saved as in we once were saved. Salvation's a once-for-all kind of thing, but we're still being made into the likeness of Jesus. And salvation has a future quality as well, a fully and finally quality. A we have resurrection bodies, sin is no longer on the table, we're ready for heaven kind of quality. That as 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, we're going to be transformed with bodies that are imperishable, because right now they're perishable. We get the wrinkles and the pains, we still have all the perishing qualities right now, but one day we will not, praise God. That is the future aspect of salvation in an already and a not yet form. Salvation is once for all, but God uses it in our life to make us more like Jesus. So we have this, this past completed quality. We've got this present ongoing quality. We've got to continue. Verses 6 to 8. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These, and these three agree. Okay, I'll give you a clue. A lot of time, a lot of space has been spilled, a lot of ink has been spilled trying to define who this is. I'll give you the best solution I found. The Spirit, the, 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 uh, the water... He's not talking about the amniotic fluid. He's not talking about the, the, the water that breaks when mommy goes into... No, 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 no. When Jesus died on the cross, it talked about water came out and blood came out. No, that's not it either. Water, this is all about Jesus' choice. When was a time that Jesus exercised a sovereign choice and involved water? His baptism. Luke 3, 
when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he, as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love with whom, with whom I am well pleased. And then he continues. Now Jesus himself was 30 years old about when he began his ministry. His baptism led right into the start of his ministry. Blood is the easy one. What choice did Jesus make that involved his blood? The cross. So, and spirit is the Holy Spirit. So I, I, I describe the question this way. How is, how does, should be how does, how does the testimony of Jesus' baptism, Jesus' death, and the Holy Spirit, how does that all agree? I came up with one word how they all agree. Think about that just for a moment. How does Jesus' baptism, his death, and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, how do they agree? defined all three with one word unique check this check this again who, who else's baptism did the, the heavens open up did a dove descend upon the guy being baptized and did this great James Earl Jonesy kind of voice come from heaven Simba hey, this is my son I'm doing a disservice. I'm like Mickey Mouse voice. This is my son in whom I love and I am well pleased. That is the most unique baptism in all of history. Unique. A unique message. A unique moment for a very unique servant of God. Savior. The testimony. John's testimony is the testimony of water. The testimony of blood. And the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Three things here in 1 John 5. The best explanation I found is that the water symbolizes is his baptism. His blood, the testimony of blood is his death. 
And that comes from, oh, let's see here, what verse did I put on here? 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. Of all the crucifixions that Rome ever did, that one was the most unique. Sin, cosmically speaking and personally speaking, sin was dealt with. We celebrate that every, every communion. This is my blood poured out as it literally poured out from him on the cross. So the three things testifying are Jesus' baptism, Jesus' blood on the cross, and the Holy Spirit. A very unique baptism for a unique Savior, a very unique death, a unique Savior, and the Holy Spirit's actions as he continually testifies in our hearts. Remember, Jesus said in John 14, the Spirit of truth is going to come. He's going to testify about me, Jesus says. 14 and also chapter 16, speaking all about the Holy Spirit. These three things are testifying. There's something about Jesus' earthly ministry that continues to testify. Who he was, what he accomplished. His death continues to testify. You know, we're never told to celebrate Christmas in the Bible. Not once. We are told to remember his death and to proclaim his death until he comes again. So of all the holidays we celebrate as Christmas, Easter would be the one that would be commanded more. Or Good Friday. We're told to remember his death. We're never told to remember his birth. We do. We have a good time at Christmas. It's very, very, you know, theologically uplifting, and it's wonderful to celebrate Christmas. But we're never commanded to. We're commanded to remember his death, to proclaim his death. That blood still testifies and this, by means of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit still convicts you, still works in your life. He is still, well, we're told, work out your salvation of fear and trembling, for it's God working in you. Yeah, God's still working in you. There's three testifying there. Very confusing part of this, of this passage that stumped a lot of people for a long time. But it's actually pretty easy if you really think about it. The two most unique parts of Jesus' life were his baptism, because God literally talked from the heavens. Nobody would have forgotten that and his time on the cross. And of course, his resurrection came with that as well. That also is extremely unique, of course. Eternal life. So how, how do they test How do they agree? Because it says here that the three of them agree, the three testimonies agree. How is it they agree? They're all unique. That's, how, that's the easiest way to put it. They all agree. They're all unique. Let's close out 9 to 12. You bet. They're all true, and they all communicate truth, don't they? This is the start of Jesus' ministry, the ministry of Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. You bet. The truth of our salvation is, is, is hanged on the, on the, on the wall, on, on a little peg. That's the cross. That's it. Our salvation without the cross, without Jesus coming in the flesh and dying a fleshly death, our salvation is worthless. It does, never happens. He's never sacrificed. Sin is never paid for, as it is required to be paid for. And the truth, the Holy Spirit is truth. He leads us in the truth. He guides us into all truth, we're told in John 15, 14 and 16. All right. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has, been made, has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. 
Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So let me just answer this quick question here. The, we have three questions left. The second one is the, is the harder one. The first and the third are not hard at all. How does your response to God's word communicate more about God than about you? So many people like to say, well, I don't believe God's word, as if, ooh, look, I'm defining myself. No, what you're doing is you're defining God. Because God is saying, this is my word. When we say the Bible is God's word, we're putting God's reputation on the line that it is in fact true, that it does in fact change lives, that God uses his word to change and to challenge and to transform. And for somebody to say, I don't believe God's word, I don't believe, I don't believe, essentially, you're making him out to be a liar, as the text says here. But that's saying it about you. You believe that God is a liar. That doesn't make God a liar. It doesn't make him a liar, but it still communicates it still communicates that God is not a receptacle of truth. I'm not saying it is, it is you're making that argument and that you are winning the argument. Remember, that bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. No, the I believe it doesn't matter. But for somebody, this is what it comes down to, God's truth says more about God than it does about us in terms of it being truthful. We never give God's truth capabilities. God does. So when we don't agree with God, especially when we're hypocrites like the ones who were distracting people in John's day, claiming they knew God, but not obeying God, they're making him out to be a liar. When we reject God, we're saying, your word is not enough, because if it was, I would believe you. And so, Randy, you're right. We do, it is making it about us as well. But in an ultimate sense, we're rejecting, we're rejecting truth, and so we are then calling that truth not truth or a falsehood or a lie. It doesn't become falsehood because we believe it to be. That's what we're communicating. Moses and Abraham, they kind of had the similar things where God, you know, if you do this, God, uh, the nations are going to talk about you. They're going to say that there's no God in Israel because you did this. And that's how they approached God. Like, God, really? Are we sure you want to do this? Because they're going to talk and your reputation is going to take a hit. Jesus said to her, this is John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? How is eternal life linked exclusively through Jesus? It's pretty obvious. All of us are going to die. Most likely. I mean, theoretically, if Jesus comes back again before we all die, then we won't die. We'll just go be with him. But all will die. Death, therefore, for eternal life to happen, can death win? Yes or no? Can death be the last chapter of your book if, if Jesus promises you eternal life in him? No. Death must, death must be defeated. Death must be defeated. Death cannot have the last page. Death cannot have the last word. So, on the cross, Jesus conquered sin. By his resurrection, Jesus conquered death. Now, resurrection is a category that is on the table in God's economy. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes, you are going to die, but yet you will live. John in Revelation calls this the first death and the second death. We're all going to experience the first death, but the ones who don't resurrect again are going to have eternal death, this lake of fire kind of second death. But those who belong to Jesus, those who belong to him, 
in him alone is a promise of eternal life. Wow. We see that in John 3.16. We see that in Romans 3.23. We see it we see it all over the New Testament. This idea that death, as horrible as we think it is, is not the end. Eternal life is unique to Jesus. It's only happening. So when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one cometh unto the Father except through me, what's he talking about? Who's going to the Father? You, after you die, no one gets to go to God my dad, the Father, the Father in heaven, no one gets to go to heaven except through me. He's talking about eternal life. Only way it happens is through Jesus. It's exclusive. No one else can give you eternal life. It is one of the few things, and one of the many things actually, that we have as Christians. We have hope. But that hope is, is based because he lives, I know one day I will live. Believe me, if Jesus had a tomb and that tomb was still filled, we would never come to church, ever. We would never sing praise songs. We would never sing the hymns. We would never want to read the Bible and be like, oh, that's great. He lost. What is that supposed to mean? Why would I celebrate the one who died for me and stayed dead? I guess I'll wait to see him someday. I hope, maybe, I've got no hope I'm going to go to heaven. If he didn't get to go to heaven, if he doesn't get to go to heaven, what hope do I have? If he stays dead, why should I live a good life if he's still dead? Because I'm still going to die one day. There's no hope for me to be different. What is the either or commandment in verse 12? What are the two groups in verse 12? We close. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Your destiny. There's two groups, two different destinies. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You either have the Son or you do not have the Son. If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. You don't have eternal life. You have no hope of eternal life. You are not born of God. You have experienced no victory over your sin, your shame, and your death. That's it. That's not much of a life. And John's reminding his church, hey, don't believe the lies. Don't believe these people who are trying. I know they sound great. I know they've got really great potlucks or whatever they got going on. They're really tempting you. I get it. Everyone seems to be going over to them. And you're like, oh, I got to do it too. I got to go with them. They don't have the sun. And the sun is everything. Whoever has the Son has life. So he's telling his little dinky church, you guys don't feel like you're much to write home about. Like the old saying, you're not worth the powder to blow you to Hades. You just feel like you have nothing. But you have everything. You have the Son. On your worst day, Christian, remember that. You have the Son of God. Working in and through you, on the cross, his past completed action secured your salvation. He still is working on you, and he gives you a great hope in the future. Hope you enjoyed our time with questions in John chapter 5. Thanks for sharing with me.